Welcome to another Ford the Rock podcast presented by The Element of Rockford. And here's your host, Ed McCullough, director of The Element. Good afternoon. Our guest today is Kyle Saunders, who is the director of public works for the city of Rockford. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks for having me. We uh, are doing this beginning of winter. We hopefully, not to put pressure on, uh, we'll get this up before the snows really fly because we want to talk about snow plowing and those kinds of things, obviously, so everybody knows what really goes on. But Kyle, one thing that I had a misconception about, and we want to get out of the way quickly, is you guys are not in charge of garbage. The Public Works Department doesn't do garbage, right? That is correct. Yeah, our our Public Works operation, um, you know, there are communities across both, um, you know, the state as well as the region that you know, certainly do provide that service for their city. We do not and we have not, even in our, our past history, you know, manage that operation within our city. So that's just, don't bother calling your alderman about that. Well, you can call your alderman about anything, but it, don't call Public Works about it. Okay. Yeah. And it's just, it's not an operation that we manage. Certainly we're a support, you know, entity. So if an alderman calls or a resident calls saying, hey, you know, Rock River Disposal, our, our garbage uh, service provider missed a pickup, you know, we're certainly going to help facilitate the pickup by, you know, reaching out to their customer service team. But, you know, our supervisors, our management team, our staff are not actively engaged in doing garbage, you know, pickup or removal on a daily basis. Well, let's do this. Why don't we start out with a broad overview of what Public Works does, because it touches just about everything the city does. Yeah, absolutely. You would be very hard pressed to find anything that the city does on a day-to-day basis that doesn't involve Public Works in some way. Um, you know, at the simplest form, we're the keepers of public infrastructure in Rockford. So we build it. We get caught here sometimes in jargon and phrase. What's public infrastructure mean for us? It's just that simple. So that's anything that our residents or our businesses use on a daily basis to get to or from, um, you know, their home to to work. It involves all the underground infrastructure. So, you know, it's everything that, that goes into making sure that when you turn on your tap, water comes out. It's all the underground infrastructure that when it rains, conveys all that rainwater away. And, and helps prevent flooding. So literally everything that happens in the right-of-way, right? And that's the area out in the street, between the sidewalks. Anything that happens in the right-of-way, we are responsible for maintaining. All right, so you've got everything in the streets and all everything about streets, and then sidewalks you share with developers and landowners and that sort of thing. We'll talk about that again a little later. So your mission is broad, but that includes closing streets for special events and all of those types of things. But how'd you end up here? Are you from Rockford or the area or did you just get recruited in or? Yeah, born and raised. I'm, I'm, I'm 34 years old and I've lived in the same neighborhood for 34 years. Are you kidding me? Uh, yep. I, I live You're a block a Rockford away. Boy? I am a Rockford boy. If you look at my resume, it's, you'd be hard to find anything but Rockford. So Rockford Public Schools, um, Rock Valley College, Rockford University. Well, Rockford College and then Rockford University because I got both my bachelor's and master's degrees from Rockford. So literally been here every day of my life for the most part. Well, that, that one shocks me. I, for some reason, assumed you were from out of town. Now, are you an engineer or are you one of those guys who's not, but has a management background? So I'm not an engineer. Um, I'm not a professional engineer. Um, I actually, my undergrad was in uh, biology, secondary education. I have five teaching endorsements. So going through college, um, I wanted to become a teacher. I worked for the city in the summer, during the summer off. Um, and I got a great opportunity to start an entry-level position, and I just fell in love with public works and kind of all that goes into it, and uh, just kind of kept going up. So I, I ended up getting a, a, an MBA, so a Master's of Business Administration, to kind of round out the business side um, that really uh, served me well in some of my previous roles, and 
right now I'm, I'm in the last week of a second master's uh, tied to organizational leadership. So really more of the management um, and organizational leadership side now, but um, certainly have spent a lot of time over the last 11 years learning the various um, ins and outs of our operation. So you have an engineering department. So all the plats and everything and all the plans for any street improvements or with the state and everything else do have to be signed off on and certified by a city engineer, correct? Correct. And who's that these days? So, so Tim Hinkins is our city engineer. He's a professional engineer, you know, came from the consulting world several years back and just does a great job leading the engineering team. Okay, so he came from consulting business and this is the first city you worked for? This is the first city, um, you know, that he's worked for from an, you know, from a staff level. Certainly as a consultant, he supported a lot of municipalities on various public infrastructure projects. So he's not, you know, managing and, and delivering project in a municipal space is not foreign to him, but this is his first go at, at being a city employee, if you will. Okay. So I'm having a hard time visualizing what ladder you climbed. Where did you start? What part of the department did you start in? Yeah, so I actually started in the water division um, as oh, a summer intern. Water. Yep, we probably don't have enough time today to talk about water. I love water. I'm a water nerd. Um, so <laughs> I I came into the the city as a summer intern in the water division. So I did everything that no one else wanted to do. You know, mowed grass, painted walls. Um, you know, delivered um, you know water to our various facilities. So I was kind of the catch-all for everything. Uh, did snow and ice in the winter. Um, I was kind of the guy that just kind of picked up where everyone else left off. So Okay, well, let's talk about water because that gets forgotten and not that many people know that water is under public works. And there's been a large number of cities that have had difficulty with water. And Rockford jumped out ahead. When was the big water referendum or the big bond issue? Was it 10 years ago or? Yeah, so it was actually the late 2000s. 2008 through 2013 was kind of our five-year span where we invested $75 million in our water system. Stop. $75 million into the water system. Seventy five. Yes, upgraded. And to be honest, Ed, the crazy part is, is over the next five years, we're looking to spend $130 million more um, you know, water in and of itself, I mean, it's a billion plus dollar asset, right? When you look at our water system, it is the uh, largest groundwater utility in the state of Illinois. Uh, we have a very rich history. We were founded in 1875. You know, Rockford water has been something that, you know, this city has been and should continue to be very proud of. Um, we brought a, a renowned civil engineer out of the world of academia, out of uh, UW-Madison, uh, D.W. Mead, still renowned in the, the professional uh, engineering world. And, and he actually is the one that designed, financed, and built our water utility, you know, 143 years ago. So Rockford Water is a really, really big deal that most people don't even know exists. I'm glad we ended up talking about this because it, it goes back, it is a rich history. And there was a time where, showing my age again, uh, where the city wasn't investing. It got patched together through the late 40s, 50s, into the 60s. It was something almost ignored. And then it started getting you know, people started paying more attention to it as a real asset. Obviously, in the investment now, the $75 million now coming $100 million, what, 25 you said? $130 plus million over the next five, yeah. So if you think about that, and people need to realize that's a very positive attribute for Rockford, attracting business, attracting industry, quite frankly, even just individuals who want to live. I mean, it's we're relatively cheap in terms of the water, I think, compared to other cities. 
and you know it's clean, it's fresh, and we have the groundwater to go on for a long time. We're not dependent upon the Colorado River. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah, you know, we have a very rich regional, you know, aquifer. We monitor it every single day, right? Just making sure that we're not seeing lowering of that regional groundwater level. We pump our water from very deep underground um, formations. So a lot of times we're pretty safe from some of those surface level contaminants. But, you know, when we're pumping from those deep aquifers, we obviously have to do a whole bunch of different things when it comes to treatment. Because now we're removing not man-made contaminants, but naturally occurring contaminants like radium, iron, manganese, those things that obviously we have to deploy some pretty advanced treatment to remove. Okay, so how deep are you drilling or bringing water up from? Yeah, so our groundwater wells, our deepest wells are 2,000 feet beneath our feet. 2,000 feet down. Yes. Okay, folks, the next time you take a shower, realize that, you know, it's coming from 2,000 feet down. Let's continue to conserve as we go forward. That's fantastic. So we know where you're from, and so you went, you started out in water, and then you moved over to... Engineering. Engineering. Even though you're not an engineer, you were doing were you doing the CIP or so I started as a senior engineering technician. That was my first full-time job at the city and I really worked in the the GIS area, so geographical information systems. So it's kind of the group that digitizes all of our plats and all of our as-builts um, so that we can kind of track our assets across the city. So that was kind of that next step. I know that you know you have experience uh, dealing with plans and and obviously, uh, plan set. How did that interface with what was the county's Windjust program, which now is run by R1 Planning, I believe? So how did the city's GIS system interface? So um, R1 or, or Wind GIS now is the consortium that kind of manages all of the data, right? So they manage the geodatabases to make sure that they've got quality in that data. And then all of our GIS staff is pointing to those databases when they're making the edits within our GIS system. So, you know, they maintain the data. We're the ones that are updating it um, on a daily basis to ensure that, you know, those assets in the field align with where they actually exist. Okay, so your geographic information system, the city of Rockford's, is maintained by Public Works, interfaces with the county R1, which is run now by R1 Planning. Correct. Okay. It's one of those really kind of, I don't know, nerdy things, but it's it's a technical thing, but it's extraordinarily important. Maintaining those streets and feeding that information, that all comes from the city's GIS system. Correct. And and I know we'll talk about a little bit more, but, you know, a lot of the decisions that we make when it comes to infrastructure, right? Whether it be, hey, should we replace that section of water main or, hey, should we resurface that road? Or, hey, you know, does that bridge need to be repaired? A lot of that data is housed in the GIS. The attributes are housed in the GIS. And when you take all of those attributes in sum, provide us, you know, much quicker and uh, data-driven uh, decision-making ability. So that's a huge part of our operation on a day-to-day basis. All right. Let's not wait to talk about that. Let's go ahead and talk about that because a lot of people are vitally concerned about, you know, what's right in front of their front door. I I know that from my past history is what's my sidewalk like? Is my garbage getting picked up, which we talked about? Is my drainage going away? I lived for a while at a pretty nasty corner that, quite frankly, turned into a lake with a couple inches of rain. And that was because it's, among other things, it's the individual's responsibility, homeowner's responsibility, to clear out the drains by their house, correct? Correct. And most people don't know that. They assume the city's supposed to do it, but it's really their responsibility, right? Yep. 
Okay, so... And I will say, we certainly appreciate their help, right? I mean, we're out and about. Our crews are out there in the city trying to clear as many as we can. But, I mean, I think we have twenty-five to 30,000 catch basins throughout the city. So if you can imagine, our entire department has 165 guys. It would be very... Guys and gals. It'd be very difficult to try to touch every single one of those several times a year. So we have guys out that are maintaining our storm sewer system. We certainly appreciate the help from residents that, hey, if you see leaves, A, don't blow your leaves into the street, right? Pick them up. That's what normal um, homeowners do. And even when you have a lot of trees, certainly in my neighborhood, we have tons. It's a pain in the butt. Um, but B, if you see the leaves blocking the inlet, it, it certainly helps us and does prevent those flooding events from happening. Okay, so... I'm in shock right now, 25,000 to 30,000 catch bases, which are the street drainage yep. areas. Okay, one of my questions was going to be, how many miles of street does the city of Rockford have? So it's a two-part question. Um, when you look at the pavement miles or the lane miles, right? Um, so that is for every, you know, every car traveling on the road, they drive in a lane, right? And some streets have two lanes, four lanes, six lanes, depending on what it is. So we have roughly 1,700 lane miles, which if you stretch that out, could get us from Rockford to Las Vegas. So that's what our guys have to not only pothole patch on and not only program for improvements, but also do snow and ice removal. So just tons, right? From here to Vegas. From here to Vegas. That is the pavement miles that we have to, or the lane miles that we have to clear and maintain throughout our city. So when you look at it just strictly center line, so just, you know, every street has one center line. We have right around 800 center line miles. So pavement miles or lane miles are important to us because that really shows how wide and how long our overall transportation network is. Okay, so we have 25 to 30,000 catch basins. We have from here to Vegas. I love that. That's going to be a T-shirt. From here to Vegas for road lanes. So let's talk plowing because the season is upon us. Do you make the call when to start or is, is that left to you or is that you, you consult with the mayor or Todd Cagnoni, city administrator, or how's that work? So it's definitely a team effort. Definitely is not me, you know, in and of myself making that decision. We're obviously led by a tremendous street superintendent, Mitch Leatherby. You know, and that operation is, that is the lifeblood of what he does in street, right? We do a lot of things in street. Certainly snow and ice removal is one of the most important. So, you know, Mitch has a team of supervisors and support staff that they monitor the forecast. They're monitoring road conditions. We have winter weather cameras out there that gauge air temp, pavement temp. You know, we're actively watching the snowfall to see if it's tracking. Um, and when you use all of those, you know, he'll call me and we'll work together. But I mean, honestly, he's making the tough call. I'm there to support him. And then, you know, my biggest role is just keeping the elected officials and, and certainly the administration posted in terms of what our operation is doing and what it looks like over the next 12 to 24 hours. Well, this is important. You actually are monitoring the temperature of the pavements, which is important because it's melting or not melting or it's gathering or turning to ice, et cetera, black ice. And that you're going to learn know that from the temperature, correct? Correct. All right. And the street superintendent, which is, for lack of a better, is civil service still a thing or not? But he's a, a city employee. He's not a political appointment, right. right? So what I want to make, I think a lot of people falsely believe the politicians are making the decisions. But here, what you're telling us is, no, this is a very technical decision. We make it based on data and the politicians don't interfere. 100%. Yeah. I mean, it, there are so many inputs that go into that operation. It's, it's monitored 24-7, 365. You know, we have three shifts a day in our street division. So there is someone from the street division on shift 
every single second of the day. So, you know, at night, if it's the overnight and we're starting to see snowfall, you know, we've got, um, you know, third shift employees that are out driving the street, applying pre-treatment. So, you know, making sure that we're salting and applying liquid treatments to our bridges and some of our other known problem areas. They're constantly in contact with our on-call supervisors who are, again, they can't sleep at night if they know snow's in the forecast. So they're watching, whether it be the, the pavement temps, the forecast, the cameras, interfacing with staff out on the streets. That line of communication flows up to the street superintendent who's, again, actively monitoring the situation. He and I are in constant contact. And then ultimately, you know, he does a great job making those decisions. And again, I'm just there to support him. As soon as that call goes out, you know, our entire fleet, our staff start reporting to work, get in trucks, get on the roads, and then we're just kind of monitoring that operation to a point where then we make the call to bring in the contractor. Okay, so, well, let's talk about that. You start out, and this is a, a long time ago, you, the city used to wait for the snow to pile up and then go get it. I think, I can't remember what it was, an inch and a half, two inches, something. There was some level the city waited for, and then they'd go plow. Here, anything's coming down, you're already treating it. I mean, if it's just wet snow, a drizzle, icy stuff, whatever, you're out working, right? Yep. And we, it starts with a smaller staff and it kind of grows, right, based on the storm. So, you know, if again, if it's second and third shift, we're going to have one or two guys out again throughout the city in a plow truck, applying salt, applying liquids to try to kind of provide as, as much pre-treatment as we can. There are instances too, where if the timing's right, we'll send an entire, you know, crew out to hit the route one time with salt. And that'll kind of help us extend that call out so that those immediate first flurries are going to be taken care of by salt. So it really depends on the storm. They're handled, you know, so differently. Um, you know, ice storms are tough, right? Because that kind of the rules are thrown out the window. Because, I mean, everybody thinks that it's really easy for our trucks. Even a truck that is full with 8 to 10 tons of salt and it weighs 40,000 pounds is still going to slide just like a car and in some instances can slide even better. So it's a case-by-case -case basis depending on the storm. That's interesting. You're, you're right. I mean, I, I can remember the ice storms are the worst. That really is. The trucks don't have that much control themselves. For the rest of the winter, folks, you know, I stay home. Just stay off the roads more than anything else. You start with arterials, correct? correct? Let's define what an arterial street is. Let's give some examples. So, you know, Charles Street is arterial, Alpine Road is an arterial, 11th Street, Harrison Avenue, East State Street, West State Street, those main roads. North Main. North Main, South Main, yep. They're going to be your main roads in town. And not only do we focus first on the arterials, also the collector level streets. So again, those are going to be your rurals. Those are going to be your central avenues. Those are going to be the streets Summit. that connect. Um Summit may be a collector that may also, uh, I think Summit is a collector. How about um, Prospect? Prospect um, would be considered a collector as well. So those are the streets that are going to connect your local neighborhood streets to your big arterial streets. Okay. So both of those are two really good examples. All right. So basically those are the streets that when you're driving on, the stop signs are on the side streets and you've got to straight through from wherever at Charles Street. No, Broadway would be another collector, right? Arterial, rather. So Broadway would be either a major collector or a minor arterial, one of the two. But it's one of the main streets that's going to be addressed right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. Yep. Okay. So, and that's citywide. Correct. You know, that geography doesn't matter there. Again, politics doesn't matter. It's what the nature of the street is. It goes. It's on the plan, right? Correct. When we make the call to call our trucks in, there are 23 trucks that go into route. And each of those routes covers every geographical area of our city, east, west, north, south, northeast, northwest. 
We don't pick one side of the, the city over another. We have 23 guys that go out. Now, obviously, we talked about 1,700 pavement or lane miles. It takes them time to get through that and get, you know, a, a good first round assault down. But there are trucks in every area of the city when we make that call. And that's the first major, let's go, we're hitting it, right? Yep. So everybody's out. All the arterials are being covered. And then what happens with the neighborhood streets, the collectors in the neighborhoods? So our local streets, our neighborhood streets, there's a strategy behind snow and ice removal. Your arterial and your collector level streets are going to see the highest traffic volumes as well as the highest speeds of traffic, right? And that's also how public safety, right, police and fire is going to get to their destination. So we want to make sure we prioritize those first. When it comes to your Excuse local Excuse me, street, let's, let's yeah. back up because I don't think many people, I would not have thought of that. But the importance of the arterials and collectors is that's fire and police. Correct. That's ambulances. Correct. That's getting people to health and safety. And right. that's the whole deal. And it's going to see the most cars going at the highest speeds, right? Okay. So that's the goal where we want to make sure those are clear because, you know, your Rockford Mass Transit District is going to use those streets to get people you know, to and from police and fire are going to use those to get to where they need to be. Um, and obviously people are going to be traveling that in large volumes to get to work and grocery stores and wherever they need. So it is intentional that those streets are going to be addressed first. When you get into your neighborhood or your local streets, a lot of times those see fewer vehicles, right? They also see much lower speeds. So our whole strategy is in the perfect world, we'd have 500 trucks, right? At $5 million a piece that were equipped to handle every storm that could ever be thrown at us. Obviously, we, we could handle to, the storm to hit Buffalo already. Exactly, right? right? Six, eight feet. Exactly, yeah, no, no big problem. deal. But, you know, in, in the real world, we don't have those resources. So we want to prioritize the main streets, and we just ask that, you know, all of our drivers also live in neighborhoods, and they have to go through the same issues. If you're coming out of your neighborhood, just go a little slower, right? As soon as you hit that collector-level street, it's going to be clear, and it's going to be salted, and you'll be able to get to your final destination. So when people get frustrated <laughs> with their neighborhood street hasn't been plowed, but they've got to get to work and they're driving through snow to get to that collector or to get to that arterial. What can they look to and say it's going to happen in X time or, or typically yeah. what they have to do is look at how heavy the snow is or what's their gauge? What do they use? Yeah. So, um, you know, our typical policy is that we are going to call and, and it's a typical policy. Sometimes we have to deviate from it. But when we see two inches of snowfall, that's when we're going to dispatch our contractors into the residential street. OK, let's let's focus on that a second. So it's two inches. Now, two inches can vary throughout the city and the region. Yep. So is it two inches at the airport? Is it two inches at the city yard? Is it two inches at city hall? Where's the two inches? So it is, we're going to have guys out in routes and we're going to be gauging, you know, throughout the city, what is the global situation on our neighborhood streets, right? We're not going to call in a contractor to say, hey, let's just hit the northeast part of town and then leave. You know, we are gauging the overall condition. You're totally right. Sometimes the south side of Rockford is going to see, you know, an inch, whereas the north side is going to have two and a half. Um, we are going to make that call globally and say, look, you know, we're, we're right around two inches. Let's get the contractors in. Let's get the streets cleared. Um, you know, another big indication, too, is what are those what are those nighttime lows going to look like? Because when you have two inches of snow on the ground and then it goes down to 10 degrees, that two inches of snow now becomes two inches of locked up ice, right? So there are times where we have to make the call that, hey, at an inch and a half, we're going to get our, our contractors in before it gets too cold and go ahead and clear those streets so they don't lock up. All right. So I hadn't thought about that either. So it, it really does become like a block of ice. And that's where the slipping and sliding and trying to get up a hill. Yep. 
can get really difficult. So your policy, the city's policy is if we're getting at 4.35 o'clock and the temperature's dropping, but we only have an inch and a quarter, inch and a half, and there's a forecast for some more, Yep. you're bringing in the contractors, yep. right? We want to get them in because we want to get that lower layer out, especially if we think tomorrow there's going to be an additional two to three inches because there's nothing worse than you know two to three inches of fluffy snow on top of ice underneath right? I'm giving you some very good examples. This is a every single time we have snow in the forecast, there is a strategy, there is an approach, there are decisions that are made, there is no really clear if this then that. There's so much nuance to snow and ice removal, and I didn't appreciate that until I became director of public works. Our street team, I mean, they are monitoring so many different things. They're looking at, you know, how much snow are we looking to get? How heavy is that snow going to be? What are the nighttime lows? What are the, the daytime highs the next day? What month is it? What day is it? What big events do we have? There is so much that goes into this. And folks, just so you know, I worked for the city back in the 70s, and I helped out a couple times on snow removal, and we had pens and papers and notepads. You know, we didn't have any data or video of snowfalls or temperature of the streets. I mean, this is really remarkable. So again, I want to emphasize this because so many people think this. This is totally technical. The politicians, well, you want to call your alderman. If your street's not done or if you're locked in or you're concerned, go ahead and call your alderman. And that's the place to call, right? Yep. The mayor's office, quite frankly, is getting flooded anyway. You're going to have more luck calling your alderman usually, I would think. And you can call your alderman, but you could also call the street division. We have a snow and ice hotline that when we're in an operation, there's going to be a live body that's going to pick that number up. No kidding. And, you know, it's 779-348-7260. All right. Can we say that one more time slower? Yes. So 779-348-7260. And when we're in a snow and ice operation, so really the litmus test to that is, you know, are we receiving a pretty significant snowfall? If yes, when you call that number, there's going to be a live body that's going to pick up. They're going to be able to kind of triage your issue. Um, You know, I will say that if snow just stopped falling two minutes ago and you don't have a plow truck in front of your house, it's probably not the right time to call. We're coming. It takes some time to get there. But, you know, if it's been, you know, 6, 8, 10, 12 hours and it looks like your entire neighborhood hasn't been hit, we certainly appreciate those phone calls because either A, our contractor's almost there, or B, you know, things do happen with all the lane miles we have. Maybe the truck missed it or it was, a you know, a fill-in driver and and he wasn't quite sure with how that route was was designed. We're we're more than happy to try to get that on a hot sheet. You know, you can have a truck break down. Uh, That is a great point. Get stuck. Yeah. I mean, I experienced that back in the day. Oh, yeah. Just get stuck. That happens. So with snow and ice removal, people, you need to be alert and pay attention yourself. You have a responsibility as a citizen for the safety of your own safety and the safety of well, those around you. But also what we learned today is safety for police and fire and the people they're serving, you know, as, as we go about this, as well, the public works folks. Now, one of the Bones of contention sometimes becomes, in this various throughout the city, the whole business of what side do you park on? Wouldn't you make that call when it's a one-sided deal in a residential area? Not even that that whole thing. Can you go through that for us? Yeah, so, you know, that emergency, that snow emergency, right? Everybody says, well, you know, hey, why is it an emergency, right? You know it's coming, right? Well, You know, one thing we talked about how our big trucks will even slide on ice, right? It is very difficult to get our big trucks into neighborhoods 
and apply salt when we have cars parked on both sides of the street. We try to keep our big trucks out of local roads and out of neighborhoods if we can help it, right? Because they're just not designed to get in some of those tight areas and neighborhoods. But you know, when we need to get salt down, that's when we need to get our trucks in because our contractors are not spreading salt. They're just plowing. All right. Let's talk about that a second. So the contractors do not do any pre-salting. Correct. They're not spreading any liquid preventive materials. They're not doing salting. So if you're a residential street, you're taking the snow head on. Yep. That street's just getting it raw, yep. so to speak. And they're just plowing. They do not apply any salt. It's our big trucks that when our arterial and collector level streets, we call it as running water, right? When there's no snow and ice accumulation, when that thing is safe and, and there's no, you know, there's no hazards uh, in, in terms of either ice or, you know, accumulated snow, we'll then get our big trucks and try to run through, if we can, if, if the storm dictates, get into the local streets and apply salt. And that'll kind of help them from icing over at night. You know, when we know there's a sizable storm coming so that we're ready, and plus, just so our contractors can have a much easier job cleaning up the streets, we're going to say, hey, we need to get all those cars on one side of the street. It's not a perfect science. I understand that it's still frustrating, but we have seen that if all the cars park on the right side, whichever it is, odd or even depending on the day, we will have a much better end product. Okay, and that probably goes by degrees, or I'm guessing, correct me, if you're on a collector, like you live on rural, right? Yep. That's a collector. It's probably more important for you to get on your correct side of the street, whether it's odd or even, than somebody on a side street that, you know, doesn't have many people, much traffic. So if you're on one of those collectors, really pay attention to what side you're supposed to be on. And if you can, at all possible, get off the road altogether, right? Definitely right. Because I, I think the chances of obviously something happening to your car on a collector level street, whether it be you know, a car sliding into that or, you know, certainly our plow trucks, um, we would appreciate it on a collector level street, but we kind of treat it, you know, all streets the same, right? If it's if it's a snow emergency and you're supposed to be on the even side of the street that day, we would ask that whether you're on a local road or a collector or an arterial, if, if we have any of those types of situations, get on the right side. It's going to make everybody's life a lot easier. Okay. Can you think of anything else you'd want to tell people about the snow removal system, about how to prepare for it, because it's clearly we're in the season and it's one of the biggest issues and biggest responsibilities, frankly, for the city. So is there anything else that we can cover here? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is, A, we live in the Midwest, right? And there's always going to be a chance of snow during the winter months, right? That could be from now know, Halloween. Chance of snow. Yeah. We're, we know oh, there's going to be snow. We know gonna there's going to be snow, right? Right. So I think the one thing as a resident is just make sure that you understand that that's going to be a tension we're going to have to manage, right? If snow's in the forecast, make sure you leave a little earlier, right? I think everybody gets frustrated because I can't go 65 down rural to get to where I want to go, right, in the winter. A, you shouldn't be going 65 down rural ever, right? But B, right. especially if snow's in the forecast. So I think we need to understand we just need to slow down and be a little bit more patient. Um, and also, it takes time. Flurries are falling, chances are our guys are either in a truck or on their way to get into a truck, right? So we're responding as quickly as we can. But even when they're in route, it takes an hour, two, three hours, depending on the storm, to see that something's happening, right? Because we're going to be applying salt. And again, it's going to take time to get through those hundreds, if not thousands of lane miles when we're in a route. Um, so you're going to need to go slow. You're, you're going to need to be patient. And you're just going to let our guys and gals just have to go to work. And I think when they're behind a plow truck, I think one really important thing to remember is those guys not only are driving a really big piece of equipment, they also have to drive it in and around other cars. And they have to operate not only the truck, but also the plows and the spreader equipment and everything. 
when you're veering in and out and tailgating and cutting them off, it makes them doing their job much more difficult. So just slow down, be patient. We're in the Midwest. Take your time to get to where you're going. Except where you live. Except, it's a, where, except where you live. This yeah. is part of the scenario. But I think it's very important. Again, I hadn't thought about it. But giving the trucks, when you're out on the road and they're plowing or they're salting, giving those drivers plenty of room. I can see that is very important. Don't crowd them. Just give them the space. Absolutely. Right? Huge. And it makes their lives easier. It makes them you know, feel a heck of a lot safer. Um, and to be honest, the other thing is when that truck gets in an accident because somebody cuts them off or rear-ends them or runs into them, that truck is now out of service, which means that now we're shifting a truck from somewhere else, right? Either one of our reserve you know, pieces of equipment or, you know, heaven forbid, having to now package up two routes and have one driver take care of it. It just ultimately slows everything down. So if you can be a little patient on the front end, we'll be able to get this thing done a heck of a lot better and quicker on the back end. Okay, let's talk real quickly about forecast. You guys have your own forecasting system, I suppose, or who do you call? I mean, isn't there a network or whatever or something you have that's all public works all the time? Yeah, so we we have like three apps that we use, um, and all are a little different, but we appreciate all of them. Um, You know, we have one service that handles um, or provides us very specialized forecasts. So they're looking at our city specifically. Oh, really? Um, when, I was a, when I was a supervisor a couple, you know, a handful of years ago, I got a call from, from Arizona in the middle of the night. I'm like, ah, I just kind of, you know, silenced it, went back to sleep. I'm on call for snow and ice because I'm like, why would somebody in Arizona be calling me at 2 in the morning? Um, get the phone call back another five seconds later. I'm like, ah, I've silenced it again, thinking it's, you know, why is somebody calling me? Third time that they called me, I'm like, oh, this probably is important. And, you know, it was our, our weather guy calling us to say, hey, this storm's coming in. It's in Iowa right now. You know, the pavement temps are such that I would plan on getting a crew out there. Um, so we have somebody that handles just really specialized Rockford forecasts. That's incredible. So some guy from Arizona is watching our weather and is lined up to call you or whoever it is now that had that job to say, you know, hey, it's two in the morning, but get ready. This is re- this is serious. Yep. So that's really cool. And then, you know, we have, I think, four to six. I think we just added a couple more of those uh, pavement cameras. So they're spread out throughout the entire city. So we have one in each quadrant. And I think we strategically put a couple others. And then we're also working with the county and the township to tap into theirs because, you know, what's happening on maybe a county road that's in the city of Rockford's jurisdiction is important to see what the other roads in that area is doing. So we're looking at those constantly. Pavement temps, we've got still frame imagery to show exactly how much snow is accumulating. And then obviously air temps, and that kind of helps provide some forecast for us. And then we have another app on our phone that, again, we're looking at constantly. So there's no one forecast that gives us all the answers, but when you marry all those together, it kind of helps in our decision making. So as people look at their own apps, and God knows there's enough weather apps out there, I've got like three or four of my own on. You know, the city's relying on not just those, one or two of those probably, but its own private service. So don't get excited if they're not responding as you think. Right. It should be appropriate, right? And we're just being transparent and honest with what we're looking at, right? Sometimes, you know, we'll say, hey, we're anticipating some flurries overnight. And that's what all of our information is showing us. And somebody's on a standalone app somewhere else that says there's going to be a blizzard tomorrow, right? I mean, it's only as good as what the forecast you're looking at says. Right. And sometimes we'll also be anticipating a really, really big snowfall that another, you know, forecast tool is saying it's going to be an inch or so. It's so dependent. The ones we use have been reliable over time. 
They don't always get it right because if they did, everybody would use them. But um, it's just as good as the information that you have. I think what bothers people, and I, this is something that's bothered me and I've heard it from others, is where the weather forecast, TV stations, radios, whatever, will hype the weather and hype a storm to basically boost the ratings. You know, like, oh, my God, X is going to happen, and it turns out they're wrong. Is there a place the city ha- on the city's website or Facebook page, or are you putting out news releases or updates? Can I go to the city's public works page and say, you know, here's what we're projecting, or is that possible or not? So our communications team, one thing that we've learned over the last couple of years is people want to to just know where we're at in the process, right? From the time that trucks are on their way in to the time that we've called the contractor in to the time that the, you know, our operation's done and, hey, if you have any issues, call us. Um, We try to get a lot more communication out there. We do not right now have, you know, this is what the forecast we're looking at. Um, There are times, I know a couple weeks ago when we got that first snowfall, I think we pushed out a couple social media posts on Facebook and Instagram just saying, hey, we're monitoring the weather. We're thinking this is going to happen. We're ready no matter what happens. So we do try to, to ramp up our communications during snow and ice season. There's not the one-stop shop of saying, hey, here's our three forecasts. This is what we're looking at right now. We do try to kind of provide some updates, you know, storm-specific when we can. Let's leave this behind. But, folks, I think we've covered just about everything. But the key things are be patient. Follow directions, pick the right side of the street when your time comes, and accept the fact that you live in a place where there's snowfalls. And, Ed, I did want to hit one more thing if I could. So, you know, I think the other thing that people, and and I couldn't appreciate this until I was in this role, is just the costs associated with this operation. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing, how much it's... When we have one of those trucks, right, just one of our plow trucks is a quarter of a million dollars. We have 28 of them. Right. To buy. To buy. buy. Right. And that's not maintenance. That's not maintenance. That's not fuel. That's not the the labor of the person in that truck. That is just that piece of equipment. On top of that, we go through anywhere from 10 to 14,000 tons of salt on an annual basis. So we're looking at anywhere from a million to a million and a half dollars a year just for the salt that we put down. Right. On top of that, when we contract out residential plowing, it's not uncommon that those those invoices we get for one operation could be, depending on the snowfall, anywhere from three to four hundred thousand dollars. So sometimes, and people don't understand this, you know, when we're at a period where we're anticipating maybe an inch and three quarters of snow, and it's going to be a high of forty-five the next day, or even forty the next day, right? And it's going to be sunny. There are going to be times we are not going to call a contractor in. Because we can save the city half a million dollars, right? And when that sun comes out the next day and it bakes on that pavement, all of that is going to melt. When we talked about how do you plan an operation, sometimes it's also economics, right? If there's no risk of ice and it's just going to be a little inconvenient on local roads until that sun can come out, we're going to take that chance because it's going to save us a heck of a lot of money in the long run. Okay, folks, you know, this is saving you tax dollars. So, you know, again, be patient and understand there's a a tremendous amount of technical information going on into the system, and they're going to look out for your dollars. I don't think we can ask for anything more than that. We're taking a break right now. It's time to refill our bank account. We'd like to thank the Eckberg Insurance Group for supporting the Elements Ford the Rock podcast. Please go to Eckberg.com to connect with Tyler Pickering. He'll work with you on all your insurance needs. 
whether they be personal, business, or not-for-profit. Once again, go to Eckberg.com for all your insurance needs. Let's move on to one of my favorite topics, the Capital Improvement Program. So committee passed it last week. It'll go before full council tonight. Okay, so we're dating this a little bit. The CIP is, in my mind, when you're talking the heart and soul of the infrastructure, back to streets, sidewalks, sewer, water, et cetera, that's it. This is the deal. So let's start with the big picture. The capital improvement program, as I recall, started back in 8081. Probably 1981 was the first one, I think. So the city's been doing it a long time now. But it's based on data again and the funding, et cetera. Can you just kind of explain the overall what the capital improvement program is? Our capital improvement program is a five-year rolling program, right? So every year we renew it and we look forward and project another five years. Um, And what that program does is there's, I believe, eight or nine chapters in the program that address whether it be neighborhood streets, capital roadways, which are your arterial and collector level streets, bridges, stormwater infrastructure, water infrastructure, you know, intersection improvements like traffic signals and pedestrian accommodations, and then also sidewalks and other active transportation pieces. I and mean, that is what we're going to do on an annual basis to improve all of that built infrastructure in Rockford every single year. All right. So, so people can understand. This is a planning document. And what it says is this year we're doing X, Y, and Z. Year two is X, Y, and Z. Year three, et cetera. And it updates. And you'll drop off a completed project that gets dropped off and... A new project takes its place five years out. And I mean, just like any planning document, you know, next year is going to be the most set in stone with the future years being, you know, we're trying to kind of lock those in, whether it be from a funding standpoint or, you know, we're trying to wrap up design. So, you know, when you look at, you know, right now we are proposing a 2023 through 2027 capital improvement plan. So that's the next five years. Obviously, the projects that are out there right now kind of locked in or programmed for 2027 those could move up, right? If funding became available sooner or they could be pushed back, say, you know, either funding fell through or the project just isn't far enough in design, right? So 2023s is pretty solid. As we get into, you know, year three, four, and five, you know, that's kind of more fluid as we advance the project delivery. Well, let's talk about one of the great variables becomes who's funding what, okay? So is there a standard funding where the state provides X amount of dollars and city motor fuel tax funds is X and then the city's retail tax fund. What's the combination? Because it's kind of a mixed pot, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, we have two primary funding sources when you look at kind of the uh, transportation side, right? And that's going to be our 1% sales tax, which that is something that is renewed every five years. Which is done by referendum. And it is done by referendum. A, Approved by City of Rockford voters, not county. Correct. Just City of Rockford. Correct. And that actually accounts for, I think, more than 70% of our total funding on an annual basis. I mean, that is the lifeblood of our capital improvement plan. You know, in the past, when we didn't have that, that we would issue debt, right? We would issue bonds and we would service that debt. We'd pay 30% interest over the life of that bond. And, you know, when if you issued a $10 million bond right? You know, you're going to have to pay back $3 million just in servicing that debt. So the 1% infrastructure tax has been huge for us. And that generates anywhere from 18 to $20 million a year, obviously, depending on the year. During COVID, we did see that we were projecting that it would go down. And we have seen that rebound here post-COVID, and especially with the, the introduction of online sales tax as well. So right. that's been huge for us. 
And then the other uh, primary funding source is uh, the motor fuel tax, and that's a state-issued tax. It's not a locally-issued tax. So the state collects it statewide and then remits that on a per capita basis to the city of Rockford. And that funding is a little bit more difficult to utilize because it comes with a host of, you know, design requirements because it has to be built to state standard at that point. So, and not saying state standard is any better than local standard, but it just has a lot more that goes into that design. Well, let's, let's talk about that because I make jokes about Kishwaukee. You, at some time, some cargo airplane is going to make a mistake and land at Kishwaukee. That was built to state standards, right? Correct. And... It, it, so state standards can be very stringent in terms of the width of the lanes. The lighting. number of lanes, right. the makeup that, of construction, absolutely. All of the other accommodations that go along with it. Um, you know, we've seen in, in recent years, I mean, we have an ADA transition plan, right? So we're wanting to, anytime we touch a street, we want to make sure that it's accessible, right? The sidewalks, the crossings, we want to make sure that everybody that may want to use that roadway can. So, I mean, to be honest, a lot of our local standards, I mean, we're getting to that point too, right? Where we're, we're when we touch a section of road, we're touching everything. We want to make sure that the sidewalks are accessible. We want to look at, you know, opportunities to provide, you know, other bike and pedestrian accommodations. You know, we're looking at trying to make sure that we're making the right investment at the right time. Because, you know, to be honest, no section of, of road is created uh, the same, right? They're all different. They all have a life cycle. And when we design an improvement, we've got to make sure we're aligning the right improvement with the right roadway life cycle. It's a challenge for sure. Let's talk for a second about the different levels of improvement. Uh, there's just absolutely gutting a road, right? Just going back down to the concrete and just total rebuild, right? What's that called? That's called a reconstruction. That's reconstruction. Yep. And can you give us an example of what might get reconstruction next year? Is there one on dock? Yeah. So uh, Charles Street is a, a big one that was uh, slated to go this year. Um, the design just took a little bit longer than we would have hoped. And there is some additional coordination that needs to happen with utility poles getting moved. But, you know, right out of the gate, you know, April 1, if not sooner, um, Charles Street from 28th Street to Parkside Drive is going to be a full reconstruction of that roadway. So all of that pavement's going to get cored out and removed. We're going to bring in fresh stone. We're going to pour a brand new concrete pavement section we're going to add in a, a multi-use path on the south side, brand new sidewalk facilities on the north, you know, traffic signal improvements, pedestrian improvements. So that would be an example where literally everything from the storm sewer inlets and catch basins to the underground storm sewer pipe to traffic signals to everything is going to be modernized and replaced. All right. So that's total reconstruction. Yep. And that's a part of the CIP. That's usually... in. Conjunction with state funding? No, I mean, it could be both state funded or locally funded, depending on uh, where the project is. Um, you know, West State Street is a good example of a project we just finished up. West State Street Phase 2 this year just opened right around Halloween. You know, that was a portion that had a lot of state funding. It's a state highway, but also locally funding. We participated in the multi-use path, the decorative lighting elements, but that would be a great example of a reconstruction that happened on a state highway. Okay, and then let's take South Main was done a few years ago, but that was a reconstruction. I remember public hearings going on. When do the public hearings get called in? When do you have those? As I recall, South Main had a lot of them. Did West State have some? I mean, will Charles Street have public hearings? Yep. West State Street, I think the corridor study we would call that, which is really kind of the kickoff of public engagement, 
where it's us saying, hey, we want to do a project along this corridor. What elements does this project need to consist of, right? What additional connections do we need? What type of facilities do we need? What type of accommodations do we need to take into consideration? And West State Street had that. Um, I think that started in the early to mid 2000s. And you can see just how long it took to get that whole project completed. We did public engagement for Charles Street. It was a little bit of a smaller scale public engagement. I think we had six or seven meetings, two rounds of them, um, where we met with residents, we met with utilities, we met with business owners, just to kind of understand you know, what they thought of the corridor or that particular area and, and kind of what they would like to see. And that was a key driver to why there's a multi-use path on the south side of the street going Oh, really? Yep. Harrison Avenue um, is another one where, again, public engagement. And I think the biggest one, the, the two that I can point to that really um, are the first step in some big projects coming forward are the 11th Street Corridor Study, where, again, we brought some state funds in through a grant, studied the whole corridor of 11th Street from basically bypass 20 in the airport all the way into where it connects into Charles Street. And then we had a series of public engagement meetings, both virtually and in person, that kind of drove what do people want to see in this area. So this was 11th Street. I didn't know this had gotten done. So this was the corridor study for 11th Street, which goes basically to Swiss campus. Out to the airport, basically. Out to the airport. Yep. Okay. And so that's on dock. That plan is done. Can people have any input onto that yet? Or So that plan is done, um, and we gathered all that input, and we actually amended our comprehensive plan, so the city's total comprehensive plan, to include the 11th Street Corridor. And that's actually slated in our five-year capital plan over three years. So um, we did three phases of it. The first phase would start in 2025, and we would go 25, 26, 27, and that is uh, one of the largest projects in our CIP. Um, right now. The other big one that followed a similar path was Auburn Street. So that was uh, the corridor of Auburn Street from basically where the roundabout is um, all the way west to Springfield Avenue. And we study that corridor again, you know, business owners, uh, you know, residents, and just try to kind of understand what they would like to see from both, you know, improvements in the uh, pavement to sidewalk accommodations to decorative lighting. Um, and then obviously amending that into our comprehensive plan too now provides for the city bringing all of our cost reduction tools, whether it be TIF, whether it be, you know, other type of funds, CDBG funds to the table to kind of help support redeveloping that corridor. That one we haven't programmed into our CIP yet. It's about a $30 million project. So we're trying to kind of find... That's Auburn Street. That's Auburn Street. Trying to find some grant opportunities. Um, and if, you know, we do get certain grants that we're currently in line for, you know, that could help advance that up to the next five years. Uh, let's go back. I think it was Harrison Avenue, you said, or maybe it was Charles Street. But as a result of the public hearings, you ended up with a bike path or recreational path? Yep. That was Charles Street. Yep. That was Charles Street. Yep. So people need to understand that you get listened to when you go to these meetings. They can seem boring sometimes and dry, but if you have an opinion to express or you're concerned about safety or the biking or whatever, show up, you know, be heard. Yeah. It's a chance for you to really have input. Well, it's huge. And I mean, Auburn Street was a great example, too, where you know, hearing that, hey, you know, when the sidewalk is this close to the back of curb, when a plow truck comes and pushes all that snow on the sidewalk, it basically makes the sidewalk, you know, not usable, right? Which we know that. That's an easy thing for us to know. But when we understand that that's a concern of residents and we can kind of troubleshoot with, okay, what is the best solution here, right? That may mean pushing that sidewalk further onto their front yard. But when residents feel like they've had a voice in that process, we're able to kind of solve some of those more complex problems. One of the ones that fascinates me is Walnut and Chestnut, the bridge. 
Do I have a right to? I mean, it splits in the middle. I I think that street has three different names. Yeah. I think honestly. But it's the one by Davis Park yep. and the hotel yep. and the and by the UW Sports Facility, yep. right? Now that's scheduled to get done, correct? So that is, but it's changed kind of what project it's a part of. So a couple of years ago, that was um, a standalone project where we were looking to add a multi-use path um, and you know lighting improvements and kind of widening. Uh, with a new parapet wall, that bridge, so that people could connect from Embassy Suites through Davis Park, across the river, into the UW Sports Factory. Um, we actually secured a $22 million grant. Um, the city did not. We were a, a partner on it, but the state of Illinois did to improve the entire portion of eastbound Business 20. So that's basically all of Chestnut, from where it kind of branches off West State Street, right, all the way through downtown, and then all the way where it wraps around and ties into East State Street. On the east side, actually, we called so, it... Give people some landmarks here. That's almost by county jail, courthouse. So it's basically from where the courthouse is, the Justice Center is, the Justice all the Center. way to basically Swedish American Hospital. So that's all going to be that's, included. That's all going to be included. Um, it's called the Downtown um, Complete Streets Revitalization. Um, so we're looking to enhance the streetscape. So we're going to be adding in improved pedestrian accommodations, so improved sidewalks. We're going to put that decorative stamped concrete that kind of looks like those nice old brick pavers. We're going to add in decorative lighting. And we're also looking to do a road diet. So we're going to bring that from four lanes down to three. We're going to put in some additional off-street bike facilities so that, you know, bikes and pedestrians can feel a lot safer going up and down that street. Also looking at doing intersection improvements so that people can cross that street a lot safer. Um, and one of the, the coolest parts about that project is we also partnered with... Um, RMTD, so the Rockford Mass Transit District, and they're actually going to put a downtown circulator route um, along that stretch so that they can better service downtown. Um, so it's a really, really cool project, and that was one of the most competitive grant opportunities that you can go after, and we were one of the ones that got it. Okay, so when you say circulator, these are smaller buses that are going to be like just driving around downtown and just keep on doing a a drop-off route, right? Yeah. I'm going every half hour yep, or something? Yep. I don't know the exact timing of the route, but exactly what you said. And they're also going to be EV buses, electric buses, which is really cool because that's RMTD continuing to kind of advance their sustainability efforts. Excellent. For anybody who wants to check this out, Chattanooga, Tennessee has a system like this already in place. I don't, I don't remember what they call it, uh, but that was the first place I saw it where they just routinely go around their downtown they stop at all the main areas. They stop at what would be our UW Sports Factory. They'd stop at the BMO Harris Bank, the Coronado, whatever. I mean, they stop at all the major places. Okay, so Madison Street's a part of this CIP this year, Madison Street Corridor, which I've always thought was ripe for development. I think the city does too. So what's the schedule for Madison Street? Because it's tough with that railroad track and you got to... What happens with the railroad track? So uh, we would anticipate the railroad track is going to remain. You know, that's a crazy story probably for a different podcast, but that railroad track and, you know, the city actually owns the right of way that that railroad track exists in. And there's an ordinance dating back to like 1850 that talks about its existence. So again, that's a, a different conversation for another day. But um, the railroad tracks would remain. We're going to look to kind of separate those from the pavement with some concrete ribbons and some other decorative pavements. But the timing, you asked about timing. So we secured a grant uh, through uh, DCEO's um, Rebuilding Downtown and Main Streets grant program last year. DCEO is? The Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity. So it's a state agency. That's a state agency. Yep. Um, so we were, you know, one of the communities that got a pretty highly competitive grant. And we're going to be improving Madison Street with that grant funding. 
um, from State Street to basically Prairie Street. That's the first phase. Um, and that's going to be full water main replacement. There's going to be some sanitary sewer improvements, sidewalk improvements. We're going to relocate all the overhead utilities. You know, by a, when you say relocate the overhead utilities, you're talking put them underground. Well, we're working with comment on that right now. So because those are pretty heavy duty, stuff. they're very heavy duty. So they're high voltage. It's a big thing that we're working through right now. So our hope is that they're buried underground. Um, we don't want to put them somewhere else where you know they're certainly an eyesore, or you know we have to work around. But um, we're actively working with ComEd right now on that. And our hopes is that first phase will be bid. Uh, we're currently finalizing design engineering right now. Hopefully it'll be bid next year, kind of mid to late next year. I mean, if we can break ground, you know, late next year, great. If not, we would anticipate a lot of that work to start in 2024. So you're you're looking hopefully to break ground on Madison Street from State Street to Prairie Street next year, 2023, late summer. Hopefully, I would anticipate more than likely we'll be bidding it kind of mid to late next year, um, we'll have a contract awarded. And then if they can get started, you know, late next year, great. But I would anticipate a lot of that work to happen in 2020. And you are trying to take it underground, the utilities. That's our hope. Okay. If you want to just drive down Madison Street and look at the Transformers, <laughs> that's a big deal. It's big. That, that's a big deal. But it also beautify the area. Fantastic. One of the things that we haven't talked about, but the Transformers leads into it. The more underground, we can take utilities underground. The safer the city is, right? I mean, we just had a, a small blackout. Some balloon hit a transformer and stroll on state. You know, five, six hundred houses. I mean, that's where you get frozen lines, ice storms, things come down, lights go out, wind, etc. So if those things are underground, the utilities are underground, that doesn't happen. So you're right. I guess I will preface with there are still influences of, you know, what's happening above ground that can impact below ground. I mean, it wasn't uh, that long ago that we had, you know, two and a half million dollars worth of frozen water services because it just got so cold, right? So, um, you know, underground utilities are not immune to what's happening above ground, but certainly in our experience, they're much more resilient. Okay. Oh, let's go back to the CIP also. There was a lot of controversy. I think a great resolution. The last plans that I saw were four or five years ago. But the whole 9th Street going to two ways, and, I mean, there's a mess that was Whitman Street Bridge. One of the great guys involved in streets in Rockford was Steve Ernst. And he did a public presentation one time a few years ago where he explained how all the north-south stuff got done and where it originally came from back in the 40s and the 50s. So this great mess, but there's bridges that really have to be replaced or rebuilt, and it's just cheaper, isn't it? To yeah. go ninth and sixth or third or what's going on? That project in our CIP right now, I think it is in 2025. Um, it's branded the Ninth Street and Sixth Street 2A conversion. Um, and that really is kind of the spaghetti bowl, we call it, of the Whitman interchange. It's a typical urban interchange where you've got these kind of on ramps and off ramps. You've got multiple bridges that, you know, carry a state highway over some local roads. So what we're looking to do is, you know, you hit it right on the head, eliminating some of those bridge structures and bringing them to, you know, at grade crossings, trying to kind of reestablish some, you know, grid network in the area that'll kind of connect the various neighborhoods. Because, you know, right now that interchange serves as a huge infrastructural barrier. You know, it was put in the, the 50s, 60s. You know, you've got kind of this like island of residential homes in the middle of it. And then you've got neighborhoods and certainly the downtown on both sides. So really trying to reconnect those communities. And then obviously get rid of some of these just antiquated ramps that just aren't needed anymore. 
And by doing all that, we can kind of re-establish two-way traffic on 6th and 9th Street. Where that becomes important is obviously people going eastbound over the Whitman Street Bridge. You know, they'll have a direct path to Swedish American Hospital. We'll kind of be able to disconnect 6th Street. And that currently kind of serves as, gosh, almost a high-speed freeway at times. And that'll kind of become more of a local feel. It's going to be a great project overall. And you hit it right on the head, actually, by us doing this, it's actually the cheaper option than just replacing what's already there. Yeah, I mean, I went through this one a little bit myself. And to me, the cost of replacing all the ramps and all the bridges and everything was staggering. And there's a book, anybody wants to really understand urban planning and how cities got here, there's a book, Robert Moses, about the guy who tore up New York, basically. Really, these things get in the way. I mean, you're blocking off neighborhoods that used to be connected. So with tearing this stuff down, you're going to be able to at least bring some of these neighborhoods back to a more natural state, if you will. And that's one of the huge projects that currently sitting in the queue on hopefully a grant award. So the program, and I didn't even mean to coin it, but there's a program at the federal level called the Reconnecting Communities Grant Program. Is it really? It is literally called that. And It's much needed. It looks to remove these infrastructural barriers. So yeah, you hit it right on the head. We're really hoping to reconnect the neighborhood, you know, create a much, you know, smoother connection east-west, and then also provide people access to the river in downtown. I mean, right now those neighborhoods have to cross a state highway that all traffic is going in one direction. I mean, you can see high speeds, it's just not safe. So anytime you can provide or give back green space, you can give back, you know, developable land and just kind of reconnect a lot of those active transportation networks. It's a win-win. And when you can do that more cost-effectively and just replacing what's already there, you really can't argue against it. So the one we've left out so far is Jefferson Street and that bridge. What's that lifespan? It doesn't have that much life left in it, does it? So the Jefferson Street Bridge, I mean, it's iconic. When you think of Rockford, you think of the Jefferson Street Bridge and those arches. It was built in 1925, so it's been there almost 100 years already. We're anticipating right now about 18 to 20 years left on that structure. We did apply for, under the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, a grant opportunity to study right? Hopefully what we want there um, and how that aligns with other planning efforts. Does Rockford want that signature iconic arch bridge back or do we want something different? Do we want that to touch down on Madison Street? Do we want it to still be above grade crossing? So we're in that process right now. But yeah, we're thinking and hoping that we've got about 18 to 20 years left on that bridge. Okay. The other major concern that comes up for people is who's in charge of fixing my street, my potholes, my two blocks that I'm driving, the neighborhood streets, aldermen get that out. How's that get decided? And that's so, part of the CIP, isn't that it? That is part of the CIP. So there's a whole chapter. The very first chapter in the CIP is called the Neighborhood Program. Um, and within that Neighborhood Program, we've got $5 million that we um, allocate to all 14 wards. So every uh, ward gets their base allocation, that same allocation. I think it's about $320,000 a year. So all 14 wards get that. And then there's also an alley allocation for the wards that have alleys where they get some additional funding that they can program to to improve the alleys in their ward. Um, On top of that, we have a program that's called the Neighborhood Priority Allocation, um, and that's a million and a half dollars. And that funding is programmed at the staff level, and that is strictly based on condition, strictly based on PCI, traffic volume, you know, connection to... What's PCI? So that is Pavement Condition Index. Thank you for calling calling out acronyms. Um, so that is the tool that we use to objectively evaluate the condition of roads. So every three years, we drive every single section of Rockford, 
and we assign a number. So you're driving, every three years you drive from here to Vegas. Every three years we drive from here to Vegas. And we don't, we hire a consultant to that drives that distance in a really fancy van that looks at every single surface deterioration indicator, every single indication that maybe that base of the road needs to be reconstructed. And they give us a number from zero to 100 what the condition of that road is. So once again, it's data-driven. Data-driven. And these are outside people who are using, obviously, pretty high-tech stuff to get these numbers, and they feed it to you, and you say, okay, this four blocks is shot. Yep. Is that what happened? 100%. You know, and I mentioned earlier in the conversation that not all roadways are created equal, right? And you have to align the type of treatment with where that pavement falls in its useful life and its life cycle curve. So PCI helps us say that, okay, if that road is a 90, right, we're going to treat that road differently at 90 than we are a road that's 15, right? Okay, right. okay. was 90 in need of repair, or is 90 good? What's the scale? So 90 is good. So 0 to 100, just like the world of academic, right? You want to get 100, you don't want to get a 0. So, you know, those roads, I mean, it's just like any type of asset curve. When your road is a 15, right, it's a candidate to be reconstructed. You're not going to resurface a road that needs to be reconstructed because you're not spending those resources as efficiently as you could. Okay, right? let's talk about that a second. Because we talked about re total reconstruction. But resurfacing is what, by definition? So that is where we'll mill, depending on what that pavement section is. You know, we may mill off the top two inches and then put a back black top of asphalt, right? right? And then we'll put back two brand new inches, inches of surface. Okay, what happens with the curb and gutter and the storm drainage? So a lot of times we don't need to do any improvements there. Um, sometimes we'll do, um, you know, if we're just doing a resurfacing, a lot of times we're not going to be doing anything with the storm sewer because all that pipe is underneath the road. Um, we may, though, improve some of the curb and gutter, right? If there's portions of that curb and gutter head that are missing, or if we know that there's a known drainage concern, we may try to improve that with curb and gutter. But a lot of times it's going to be some minor concrete work and then just mill and overlay the top two layers of that pavement. And this is also where ADA, the American Disabilities, you may do the corner yep. at the same time. We may here. do some ramps or, you know, we may add a crosswalk there. I mean, kind of minor additions, but it's really the key is that two inches kind of mill and pave. One of my ongoing pet peeves, for whatever reason, I need to bring it sidewalks. Our group, The Element, focuses a lot on downtown and the areas around downtown. So it's older, so these sidewalks, some of which are in pretty bad shape. I want to get my sidewalks fixed. I just bought a house. I'm moving into an older area, sidewalk shot, my house. What do I do? So A, you can always work with your alderman. They're the vanguard for us on the front lines talking to constituents. But we do have a service request portal on our website, um, or you can call us at the City of Rockford. You can go through the general number and get to engineering. As soon as you um, submit that request, our staff will go out and kind of inventory the area to determine, to your point, you know, is it just these two panels or is it really six? Because once we do these two, we also have to do the ramp. So we'll kind of inventory and then prioritize, right? Because again, not all trip hazards are created equal, right? The trip hazard that's six inches is going to be uh, prioritized much higher than the trip hazard that's, you know, a quarter of an inch. It may not look good. It may be kind of annoying because some water pools, but we want to try to kind of prioritize the worst of the worst when it comes to sidewalk or, you know, areas where there's a sidewalk gap, right? And, and accessibility is, is a concern or, you know, if there's an ADA issue and we want to make sure we address that. You know, we, I think stats are important, right? So we talked about 1,700 lane miles of pavement. We have more than 800 miles of sidewalk. So again, it, we can't be everywhere all the time at once. Um, we have ramped up our investment in sidewalk. Um, three or four years ago, we were spending about $450,000 a year citywide. Um, in the, the next five years, we're looking at spending about a million dollars a year in sidewalks. So 
We've doubled what our programming levels are. Um, and we've also had um, some, some supplemental investment made through our workforce development initiative, which is an awesome project where, you know, we're, um, we're engaging our community, you know, finding some, some at, you know, at-risk youth throughout our community that want to learn a trade. And they're actually out there doing sidewalk replacement for us and oh, learning really? the trade. So. so they're working the cement and yep. working on the wood that goes down. All the forms and, and they're learning a trade. And, and we've had some really good success. This year was the first year. And I believe just about every single one of the participants in that program was placed with a union contractor at the end of it. Well, that that's fantastic. Awesome, awesome that's program. That's great. Great yeah. to hear about. Yep. Again, good things happening in Rockford and we don't get enough publicity and enough marketing. So let me go back to sidewalks because I have a sidewalk I want fixed. Full disclosure, people. Anyway, there used to be a 50-50 program. Does that still exist or is it just the city now? Just the city now. We discontinued the 50-50 program several years ago. It was certainly utilized. We didn't think it was being utilized quite as much as we would have hoped. So, you know, we just instead ramped up our funding level on an annual basis. And right now for priority sidewalk requests, like if there's an immediate trip hazard and there's a risk of falling and you know, it's presenting an accessibility issue. We like to say that we can get that programmed in the next year, right? You know, if it's kind of a lower priority and it's just an aesthetic issue and it's kind of crumbling, it'd be great to get it replaced. You know, that may take two years because again, we're just trying to kind of prioritize, but we are addressing sidewalk on a much more frequent basis, whether it's the roadways getting resurfaced and we're doing ramps or we're adding it as part of the workforce development initiative, or we're doing a sidewalk gap program, or we're doing our ADA transition plan, or the state's coming through and making investments. The one nice thing is several years ago, I think it was in 2018, we passed the complete streets standard, which means that when we do any type of improvement, we're not just looking at the roadway, right? We're also looking at the sidewalks, we're looking at the multi-use pass, we're looking at the pedestrian infrastructure to make sure that when we touch that road, we're hopefully improving it for all those users of the transportation network. I think that's very important, Kyle. Just so you understand, folks, a complete streets is something that began 10, maybe 10, 12 years ago in the urban planning world. But what it does is, as Kyle said, the really focus used to be just between the curb and gutter. What's the street look like? Now it's everything. So it's really a benefit for any area. It goes to these major reconstructions that'll go to the business of just even the resurfacing. So I'm delighted the city's doing that. That's another positive of the city of Rockford that people probably aren't aware of. You know, Public Works does a lot of stuff. So we want to thank Kyle for all his time and all the information. They do have hotlines. You can call the city. You can call your alderman if you do have questions about any of these items. And quite frankly, uh, Kyle, thank you. It's fantastic. I, I learned a lot today, and I appreciate your time and energy. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. So Good. Glad you enjoyed it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up another Ford to Rock podcast. There's a lot of good things going on through the Public Works Department of the City of Rockford. Check out their website. Among other things, you can find the CIP program that we discussed there. And uh, when things get nasty with the snow, give them a check. You'll probably find some things about the snow, too. Thanks very much again, Kyle, and you folks take care out there. Thank you for listening to another Ford the Rock podcast by The Element. You can find us on Apple, Google, or any place you typically access your podcasts.